Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Now that we've finished recapping the novella A Story by John V. Marsh, we're going to discuss this story in its entirety as a wrap-up episode. You say episode, but episodes is actually more correct. This is going to be part one of two because there's just so much to unpack in this story. So in this episode, we're going to limit ourselves to talking about themes and motifs. And then we're going to go ahead and get to the puzzles and those unresolved questions in the next episode. And that's where we're going to really address the questions about what happened and who the shadow children are, among other things. But we picked out two big motifs to talk about today. And the first one is really about mind and substance, though we might also call it soul and body. And the other one is going to be about time. I'm going to lead us through that one. But uh, for this first part about soul, body, mind and substance, Brandon is going to be our uh, our Virgil on this uh, descent into the underworld. And maybe the ascent up Mount Purgatorio, as, as, we'll, as we'll find out in the conversation. <laughs> There's just so much going on here in the story as it relates to the philosophical notion of substance. It's actually crazy. Uh, even in rereading this story, the number of mentions of things unseen or, or insubstantial are all over the place. In the first paragraph of the story, we even get a description of the place where the hill people go to give birth, quote, where all the unseen is kind to mothers. And this is something I think I haven't been able to find too many people talking about this in the story. And I think it, it has to do with that line, which our listeners will recall, will recall we, we spoke about a few episodes ago where the shadow children the old wise one says that we shake extension and then has a long conversation about what that means. And I've done some digging this past week uh, to help navigate us through that conversation. But I also want to point out a little more about the unseen and insubstantial things that are in this story. Very early on, we learn that the priest of thunder always is a ghost that is a soul without a body. And this idea is something that speaks to the different forms that abos, that their being takes on after death. I think we think trees might be another one. We don't know exactly what's going on there. And this is something I want us to keep in mind as we navigate this upcoming labyrinth. We also know that the shadow children are obsessed with nothingness. And this is something that they use as a concept. And they're able to use nothingness to communicate with and manipulate physical properties of the world. And all of this just goes to to confirm my belief that something very complicated is going on with substance in this story. But because a discussion of substances and literary references associated with substances found in this story could be just a 40-page paper in itself, I just want to light upon three things that follow from some of our previous discussions. Yeah, and I, I expect that we'll get to about 40 pages of conversation on the forum on this topic. I think so. I hope so. I think it's fascinating. Uh, the first thing I want to do is revisit what we talk about when we talk about substances. The notion of substances has a, a long history in philosophy, and that's due to the fact that what we call consciousness, 
but this has had many other names throughout history, including souls, is really um, mystery. How do our thoughts or our spirit or our mind interact with things in the world, things that are made up of matter, of atoms, things with extension as a primary property? What are the features of each type of thing, of spirit, of matter? Can they interact with each other? Are they somehow the same thing? And more importantly, all of these questions are framed under the bigger question of how can this teach us about how God is different from us? What realm does God fully reside in? Are our actions originated or caused by consciousness in some way? Is that the level of interaction? And can achieving a higher state of consciousness, whether it's unity with God as, as the epigram of this story evokes or the use of mind-altering drugs, which is found in this story as well, make us into better beings in this world? Can it give us a better perception of reality and guide our actions in more meaningful ways? These are kind of the stakes of the question of what substances are that really surround us. Well, let me interrupt just a, a second and, and press you to tell us again, what is extension? And I say us because I'm, I'm using the listeners to stand in for my own ignorance. We talked about this before in an earlier episode, and I'm still not sure that I really grasp what a philosopher means when he or she says extension. Yeah, a lot of these concepts are so self-evident that they unravel your mind when you think about them too much. And this is a problem of studying philosophy in general, is the most self-evident things become the most complicated when you think about them. Extension is the word used to describe a physical substance. It is the property that a physical substance has. And all extension is describing is the fact that physical, that the physical property of an object in the world we define by saying it ends at a certain point. It has a terminus point. It has extension. All right. So far, I'm on board with this. So, so let's get into what you want to really point out here. Yeah. So I, I, I'm going to keep going a little bit more with this. There are a lot of different theories about the interplay of mind and matter. And the only two that really seem relevant to me in this story, though I hope our listeners correct me, is dualism or substance dualism and panentheism. Uh, roughly speaking, substance dualism is the notion that the world is organized in terms of immaterial states or concepts that organize the world and physical objects that are containers for concepts with different properties than the concepts themselves. For a more complete and valuable discussion on this subject, uh, David Hume is your man. He's where you're going to want to start on this. Hume was a major figure in the Scottish Enlightenment and also a, a very important figure in philosophy, not just for his own theories about causation, how things interact with one another, um, but also for Immanuel Kant's development as a philosopher, for his beginning to put concepts together that become the critique of pure reason, which is a very difficult philosophical masterpiece. Hume also was the British ambassador to France in the, the middle of the 18th century. And I'm pretty sure that he actually lived with Rousseau, the, the, other, the, the famous French Enlightenment philosopher, together in Paris. And I have to say that this is a roommate sitcom that Netflix needs to get on as soon as possible. 
that is a great sitcom idea. I think we need to pitch it to Netflix. Yeah, I don't know why we're not working in television development. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, again, I'm going to reiterate here that the, the classical definition for a physical substance, again, the container for our concepts, and this is really uh, something that the existentialists really pick up on, that the world is not pure forms, but our ideas, our approach to the world informs how the world is right the the question is is our essences first essentialism is our ideas in the mind of god the thing that exists for eternity or ex- is existence primaries our ability to act in the world and make changes to physical things and have concepts for them and as a result how we value the world is that what is primary that is the existentialism existentialism essentialism debate in a nutshell but as i was saying the classical definition for a physical substance is in this view extension an object that has a material terminal terminal point in the world now as we brought up, we do encounter this word extension explicitly in this text. When the old wise one explains to Sandwalker upon their first meeting just how it is they are able to sing their songs, to turn back the ships from St. Anne, as we later discover, they shake extension. Now, if you're not confused by now, uh, uh, you, are, you are much, much smarter than I am because I just said extension is a property of physical substances, not spiritual ones. So it could be that the shadow children and the old wise one are making a case for everything being the same substance. There are two broad same substance philosophies. One is rooted in atomism, that everything is made up of small particles. And the other is rooted in panentheism, that everything is actually made of spirit and is inhered in God himself. But Wolf complicates these notions as soon as he brings them up by telling us that the shadow children have an understanding of particles and waves, by talking about how sound travels and what is shaking when sounds are made. And this would be something close to atomism. But then they reject it immediately by giving... Sandwalker, a brief lesson, a brief lesson in the present absence of an object. Namely, they ask him to hold out his hands and imagine that they are gone. And that this absence of the material, which is the concept of nothingness, the container for whatever this property is, is what they shake. And that this is also what holds the world together, not atoms. And I think the unasked question here that we have to answer is, what exactly is it that fills the space of the hands when they are imagined to be missing? In other words, what is the container that holds nothingness? Is it spirit? Are the shadow children making the case that spirit can interact with objects because everything is spirit? Again, this is about causality and the interplay of these two things. Or is this just an advanced argument for substance dualism, for mental causation, for the ability of the mind to make changes in the world? Right. Okay. So let me let me press you on that a little bit, because maybe I'm not clear on what it means to shake extension, which is what the, the old wise one says that they do. Because 
if, if I'm understanding you correctly, extension just means a substance. It's a, it's a way of describing the edge of a substance. And if that's the case, then aren't I also shaking extension just whenever I touch something? Right. Well, that is the really complicated part of what's going on here. So extension is specifically used to describe the property of physical objects. And a version of there's only one substance is that we only have that, that everything is made up of atoms. And these shadow children seem to have a complex understanding of how sound waves work, of what shakes when you use your voice. It's the cilia in your ear. It is the particles on the air that carry the sound of your voice. That would be shaking extension under an atomist view that it transfers between the invisible atoms in the air. But what they seem to be saying is that imagine that where something is, nothing is there, and that is what we shake. And to me, that is the core question of what they mean when they say they shake extension. In my mind, they are flipping this notion on its head. And we learn later on that they say the mind is all that matters. So I wonder if they've gotten to a point in their uh, evolution or devolution as the species through the use of this drug that they don't recognize the properties of the physical world and only recognize and and use language uh, that describes properties of the physical world now to describe the spiritual world. Right, and when we talked about this in the section where we encountered it, you know, I made a, a big deal about how this is a way of describing telepathy and how that's something that uh, most of Wolf's immediate predecessors and even contemporaries in the genre don't bother to do. They just say, hey, look, this is a world that has telepaths. How that works doesn't matter. But for Wolf, especially as, as an engineer, right, it does matter to him how that functions. And that seems to be something he's trying to, to do here. I feel like he's using this as a way to show us that the shadow children know what they're talking about, but maybe there's no way that we possibly can. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that you and I are maybe just as humanities, people are just lacking in some scientific knowledge that Wolf has here? That's a wonderful question. And I think as we continue to go through my argument, we're going to discover that we neglected to do a very important piece of work as we were encountering this story. And that's kind of what I want to talk about next. All right. Well, I, I won't keep us from getting there. Let's, let's do it. Well, as I said, and maybe it's just my own mind that's been broken over, over years and years of maltreatment. But to me, this is an extraordinarily challenging passage where the Shadow Children is trying to describe how Sandwalker, whose brain is in his Valley, who is a different creature, can learn to shake extension, can learn the ways of the shadow children. And in order to do that, we have to talk about just what the hell a shadow is. This is something we didn't do. Wolf is hiding in plain sight here. He, he's at his best when he's doing something like this. He automatically associates the name shadow children with a constellation. So we don't question the meaning of these words. A shadow is self-evident. There's nothing we need to think about with uh, with a shadow. It's just they named this species after the constellation, or maybe the constellation is named after them, but there's some mythic past we get. Wolf is hiding 
right out in the open, I think some very important information. So playing a hunch that this trilogy of novellas is really Wolf's divine comedy, and this is a hypothesis that really needs some fleshing out to be sure. Um, I also want to say we're not the first to notice it. Robert Borsky mentions this in his work, Cave Canum. I started looking into what's going on in Purgatorio, which is the middle section of the Divine Comedy by Dante. Yeah, we're going to have some more on Dante in the next episode, too. And when we've invoked Dante before, but we actually should probably just pause here for a second just to make sure everyone's on board with who Dante was. Dante Oligari was a 13th century Italian uh, Florentine, specifically uh, elite, who was also a massive literary figure of his time. He wrote a number of extraordinarily beautiful and extraordinarily significant works, but the one that he is famous for, the one that many of us have read in high school or in college, is his three-part epic poem, The Divine Comedy. The, the three parts, of course, are The Inferno, The Purgatorio, and The Paradiso, or Hell, Purgatory, and Heaven. Broadly speaking, Purgatorio is about Virgil guiding Dante up a mountain ascending through the seven deadly sins as terraces, uh, which Dante characterizes in the poem as, as examples of perversions of love. People love wrongly and the way that they love wrongly designates where they end up on this mountain. At the top of the mountain is paradise, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention again, the epigram, which is taken from a text about an ascent up another spiritual mountain that leads to unity with God or paradise. Um, and another important to thing to keep in mind with Purgatorio is that Dante and Virgil cannot ascend the mountain during the night. The sun is maybe a symbol of God's grace in this. Um, I've done some really rough, rough work here and, and relied on uh, a bunch of notes uh, from other scholars. So um, I hope our listeners will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but they're stopped from continuing their journey at night because the sun is not on them. Yeah, before we get too far into this, actually, we should say that neither you nor I are particularly well-versed in Dante at all. This is actually a real big gap in our knowledge. But Clay Temple Media does have in its team uh, someone with a PhD in Renaissance Italian literature. That's my co-host of Lower Decks, the, our Star Trek Discovery podcast, Valerie Hoagland. Uh, and she was able to give us uh, a number of books and articles that we should read to really get a hold of the, the metaphysics of Dante's Divine Comedy. And so now we are up to speed on this. Yeah, we're all doing the best we can out here. Uh, but really, thanks to Valerie for providing us with some great resources. Well, as they're ascending the mountain on their way to paradise, Dante and Virgil leave the terrace that is reserved for those who commit the sin of gluttony. Dante is disturbed by something he sees on this terrace, and it is the fact that spirits can have forms that change shape that in his view at this point, souls are eternal and unchanging, much like we talked about with Plato's uh, Phaedrus. But these souls seem to be able to have different forms or change as a result of their own actions. All of this is found in, in Canto 25 of Purgatorio. Virgil tries to explain what is going on with these spirits who can change, who can affect change on themselves. 
by reminding Dante of Meliager's death and how Meliager's essential being was tied to a piece of wood. Yeah, Meliager is uh, a character that we meet in uh, the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. Uh, this is the original Horcrux here, more or less. Uh, he is, uh, when he is born, there's a, a prophecy that he will essentially live forever. He can't be defeated uh, in combat unless this piece of wood is burned. This very specific piece of wood is burned. So someone says, well, hey, let's just hide that and then he'll be fine. Uh, And he is fine for a long time. Then he makes the mistake of upsetting that person who says, ah, well, I know where your Horcrux is. So into the fire that goes. And that's the end of the the hero Meliager. Yeah. And you're as confused as Dante is when this is somehow an explanation for how spirits can change form or shape. And so Virgil, realizing he hasn't really said anything helpful, invites somebody named uh, Statius to answer. And I am confused, as Dante is, when Virgil tries to remind us of this story to explain how souls can and spirits can change their shape by telling us a story about a soul that is embedded in a piece of wood and what you do to that wood is done to the person. Basically it is, it is a very, very difficult concept. And I also want to say that this is not the first time, and this is also not my own work, um, that the soul being in a piece of wood is brought up in Dante in the inferno in the seventh circle in the second ring of hell, we find a wood, a wooded area, a forest uh, that is plagued by harpies. And the trees in this forest are souls of suicides, of people who have died through self-harm. And in order to learn about what is going on here, Dante has to break a piece of a branch, a twig off of a tree in order to hear their story and understand why they are the souls are trapped in trees. Another interesting thing about the suicides here is that because they have destroyed their bodies, when all the souls are met back with the bodies in the, in the resurrection, in the final resurrection, these bodies will be hung from the trees and the souls will follow behind them in the tree itself. They will never be re- returned to their body. But Dante here is also with an, a third companion besides Virgil, who, who is named Statius. And Virgil invites Statius to answer more coherently Dante's question about the changeability of these souls. Yeah, and maybe we should say here just to be clear that Virgil and Statius are both Roman epic poets. Uh, In fact, the two of the three Roman epics, big Roman epics that we have that have survived to this day are by Virgil and Statius. Virgil wrote the Aeneid, which of course David quotes in the fifth head of Cerberus. So we've talked about him before. What's important here for Dante is that Virgil wrote the most beautiful poetical description of the underworld in classical literature in, in book six of the Aeneid when Aeneas has to travel through the underworld. So of course, he's the natural guide through the underworld. Uh, Statius is from a generation later than Virgil, and he wrote an epic poem uh, called the Thebaid, which is about the the saga, the big family saga in Greek mythology uh, around the city of Thebes. This is people, Oedipus, Antigone, etc. We know these people from Greek tragedy as well. 
basically Statius's response to Dante is that when a person dies, they may end up becoming a shade, which is the result of uh, something that happens when the space that a soul has taken up leaves an imprint in the air that has a physical impact in, in the world in some way. And that emptiness is filled with an imitation of the body left behind. And that imitation of the body is filled with our longings and other sentiments. That's a quote. It is as potentially real as a body. Broadly speaking, we have our empty space left behind, which is the container for our desires that have become the shadow of our soul. It follows behind our our soul. It is the reversal of the imagery, maybe in Inferno um, Cantos 13. But I think shade here is the key word, especially when we're talking about something filling a space that is left behind by something that was present just before. Shade is an interesting word because it both means shadow, as in the darkness that is cast by the interplay of an object in light, which takes the form of the thing. Um, but it lacks its substance. It lacks the thing's substance. But also going back to the root of the word, it, it could also mean to screen or shield from attack. And, and I want to make it clear that shade, of course, is not the word used in 13th century Italian, but that uh, this is part of Wolf's wordplay of really complicated, complicating an idea that he's hiding in plain sight. Yeah, and it, it, in the text, it'll be ombra, or in Latin, this will be umbra, and, and it doesn't quite have that same play in Latin as it does in English or Italian as it does in English, where uh, it really should just be described as shadow so that we don't actually have that confusion about uh, shade as, as an object noun, uh, though we do ultimately get the term umbrella from this same word. Yes, and I do think Shadow here is absolutely the right word to use when describing these people, uh, the, the, the shades of Dante's Purgatorio. Um, but I think Wolf is also playing with us by looking at the English, the old English root word. And I think that the game is afoot at this point. The, the, this second definition of shade meaning to screen or shield from attack as it was used in Old English speaks to the shadow children's ability to turn the ships away from St. Anne to keep people out, to keep new intruders away. And the first definition of the shadow uh, is kind of the, uh, of shadow in the way that we often talk about it, as I, as I mentioned, uh, speaks to the shadow children's insubstantiality and ephemerality in some way. Yeah, and this ability to turn the ships back, to, to screen the planet somehow, this is one of the unresolved questions that we're going to take up in the next episode. And I hadn't considered any of this evidence when I was thinking about my response to, to this question. So I'm looking forward to carrying that conversation on in the next episode. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, as we're talking about substance, we should also keep in mind that this notion of shade as it's used uh, when we're talking about how something is emptily imitating something else is, is a big part of what's going on in this whole series of novels. And particularly the way Dante is talking about how that the space left behind when a soul leaves it can be a container for something else, 
reminds me of the description of holding your hands out in front of you and imagining them gone. What is left behind there in those circumstances? This kind of goes a little bit of the way to helping us understand. Of course, these concepts are not real, so it's a very, very challenging sort of thing to to talk about. But I think investigating the word shadow is what really led me to some of these things. Yeah, of course, this isn't the first time we've seen Wolf using shadow or shadows in some particular way. And he almost always contrasts that with light. I don't know that we've seen that in the text so far, but that is what Dante does. The souls of dead people are shadows in the inferno and in the purgatory or in hell and in purgatory. But when we get to paradise or heaven, those are no longer shadows. They are light. They're pure light. We haven't encountered that yet in the text, but perhaps we will in VRT. Right. And that's something we're going to have to keep our eye on in VRT is, you know, a question I want to raise at the end uh, that's more rhetorical is really about who we are tracking in terms of this ascent up the mountain. There is just one more reference I want to bring into this conversation. Uh, Now we're rounding third here about substances that also plays with another definition of shadow as a shadow, as an imitation of the thing itself. And this is what we hinted at in our last episode. And this idea comes from the shadow children's claim that only the mind is important and it is thought that makes things So, and as I said in the last episode, this line immediately calls to my mind the famous line from Hamlet, uh, the famous line in Hamlet from Act 2, Scene 2. And Glenn and I will be reading these 20 or so lines uh, from the second quarto. um, And this is the famous quote, one of many in Hamlet's, where Hamlet says, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. I'll set up the scene a little bit. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Hamlet's old friends, have returned to the court at the request of the queen, and they are being very coy in answering him about why they've come to visit him. Hamlet is in misery. He is in despair, and they won't give him a direct answer, so they go on a little bit of a tangential conversation. Yeah, this is going to be great. I'm really excited about this. Valerie and I have done the St. Crispin's Day speech from Henry V together over on Lower Decks, but you and I have never read any Shakespeare together, performed any Shakespeare together on the air. Of course, what listeners are going to hear is probably going to be take 11 or something, <laughs> but, but we'll do our best. We'll do our best. Hamlet is basically saying that the the end is near because the world has become honest and they're being dishonest with him and he asks them why fortune has sent rosencrantz and guildenstern to prison glenn will be reading both rosencrantz and guildenstern Um, i will be reading the part of hamlet prison my lord denmark's a prison then is the world one a goodly one in which there are many confines wards and dungeons denmark being of the worst We think not so, my lord. When then tis none for you, for there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. To me, it is a prison. Why, then your ambition makes it one. Tis too narrow for your mind. Oh, God, I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself a king of infinite space, were it not that I have bad dreams. Which dreams indeed are ambition, for the very substance of the ambitious is merely the shadow of a dream. A dream itself is but a shadow. Truly, 
and I hold ambition of so airy and light a quality that it is but a shadow's shadow. Then are our beggars' bodies, and our monarchs, and outstretched heroes, the beggars' shadows? Shall we to the court? For by my fay, I cannot reason. We'll wait upon you. That's the scene here in Hamlet. Um, and as I said, I think Wolf is really explicitly referencing this line in Hamlet about there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so by saying it is thought that makes things. So if that's not a direct reference, I don't know what is. But what's interesting to me about this scene as we read it is the connection between dreaming and shadows. Hamlet redefines shadows as dreams in this section. The The line that really is important here isn't there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, but then are our beggars' bodies and our monarchs and outstretched heroes, the beggars' shadows. He's asking the question, perhaps, and it's important to keep in mind here that Hamlet is a prince, he's, he's royalty, and that tragedy is a genre that is caught up with the problem of the consequences of the actions that royalty takes when their flaws lead them to their own ruin or to the ruin of a kingdom. The question then could be reframed is, are, are we not just the dreams of what beggars think we ought to be? Are we containers purely for their ideas of what royalty is? Or are we ourselves? Are we ourselves? How could we even tell the difference? That's why he can't reason. To put it another way, by looking at the way that shadows and dreams are conflated in this scene, Shakespeare is asking us to feel the fall, the tragic fall that is encapsulated in in classical tragedy by looking at those people who we have tried to form through our example by impressing ourselves as an idea in their mind, as a dream of well-being, of goodness in the world, and finding that they resemble the idea of what we ought to be more than we resemble it ourselves. We are the shadows of beggars' dreams. I think the invocation of heroes and monarchs here is precisely meant to call to mind the manner in which heroes and monarchs are meant to represent the abstracted excellence of a people in their own minds, in their collective unconscious, as Young might say. It is the, the substance of spirit, then. It is the dreams of the lowly. And when humans can imagine something greater for themselves and for others, they're able to conjure it into reality through a really complicated interplay of substances. The dream does become matter by taking action and imitating their ideas of whomever they think is the container for them, whether the ideas are people themselves or just a hope for something greater. And we can put this striving, this ambition, as Hamlet puts it, though it may just be a beggar's shadow in contrast with the shadow children. At this point in their history, the best the shadow children can conjure in their dreams is a group norm. Though we're told they were once wrapped in glory, that they were a noble creature that the, that the abos found worthy of imitation. And this idea of wrapped in glory is another very complicated image if we're talking about substances. How can be wrapped in an idea? By what means, by what manner, what thing wraps you when you are, say we are wrapped in an idea? The abos now are more like what the shadow children were, and the shadow children have to delude themselves into believing that they are greater than what they've lost, their forms, their glory, 
by use of becoming these shades or shadows through a substance whose properties seem to strip their physicality away and leave only behind shadows of their former selves, the shades in Dante's sense. And now they live with no ambition beyond a desire to not be disturbed by a new group of real humans who could arrive. And I think that's kind of what Wolf is getting at here. If we're going to marry the overall theme of motif of imitation, which is a huge part of this story, in with substances and matter, what we're really looking at is for substance to fill a void that is left behind by the soul leaving an imprint and then dispersing. And I don't know, that's maybe as far as I've gotten in this primer on on the importance of substance in this story. Well, certainly this idea that we find here in Hamlet of the thinking, making it so, which obviously is, is here in a story as well, and pairing that up with these images of shadows here, right? If if the things that the shadow children say about their history, their past on St. Anne and their relationship with the hill people and the marshmen, if all of those things are true, then the hill people and the marshmen, the abos, are animals who have the ability to mimic the forms of other things that they encounter and only took on this humanoid form when they encountered the shadow children when they arrived on St. Anne from some other planet. So they are in that sense then the the dream that is creating the image or the for the form that the abos take. I think that's some brilliant and beautiful wordplay that Wolf is playing with here. Because I think when we first encounter the shadow children as fairies or, or elves, we get the impression that they're called the shadow children because they're diminutive and they're nocturnal. And because the hill people are diurnal, they would only be encountered at the two periods of twilight and thus be seen as kind of shadows against a, a likewise dark background. That's probably true. But there is this other meaning of it here that is wrapped up with self-fashioning based on your thoughts or perhaps on, on what is in your environment. Exactly. And that original ideal that they represented to the, the creature that was able to take any form to, to become a container to fill any type of space found that the most worthy form to imitate. And the shadow children become then the shade like the the image reverses we have a real a mirroring of this effect and the shadow children are unable to return to being human because they've so changed themselves they've they've sought unity with god through maybe illicit means in this story they thought unity with god meant becoming god but we see the abos in an ascent of being whose who are the lowly, who dream of the great, and the great then loses their form, though the idea of the, of the great never leaves the mind of the people who hold it. That is a long way to go in the conversation of substance. I, I don't really know what much to say. There, there were a lot of ideas I put out there, but there are a few questions I want to ask just to try to wrap this up and, and really tie it to the text. One is, we talked about this idea of people's souls being caught in wood or trees in different ways that is explicitly brought up in 
this text, I think, in A Story by John V. Marsh, but also in The Inferno. You know, what do you make of that co- connection, Glenn, of the sacredness of trees in this story? I think it's clear that, that Wolf is not intending that the trees in this story represent suicides, but that there is something about this imagery of the soul being tied to wood that is found in Dante that Wolf is also working with. Right. These are the, the trees in the oases up in the, the hill country. The hill people think of them as sentient creatures, people whose permission needs to be asked before they are touched or even their personal space is invaded. Their water supply is used. I think this is an open question about what are these trees? Are they people are not or not? Are they actually sentient creatures in some way? I think that they are abos who choose to be trees in the same way that Sandwalker and Eastwind are abos who choose to be humans or, or humanoid in some way, just as we're told that abos frequently took on the form of clouds or lava flows. So to me, I'm not sure that I would read them as being souls that are trapped in, in this tree, unless we want to say that a tree is a lesser form and, and somehow they've been they're trapped because they haven't chosen or been able to achieve the higher humanoid form. I don't think at all that that's what Wolf is suggesting. In fact, I think these trees are probably um, uh, perhaps the happiest and best life form that we actually encounter in the story. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I think that what we're looking at is different forms, maybe that this species can take in the afterlife. I think Ghosts are another one. I think the soul without a container is another choice that these creatures can make. And we know from Fifth Head that the theory is that um, the hill people at least mate with trees, and that's how they are able to reproduce. That's where their children come from. Another question I want to ask is, uh, while we're on the topic of the nature of this species that's able to change forms is does that mean that the abos are able to recognize beyond recognize their own beyond the physical properties that are in the world we know they can see ghosts maybe they see trees maybe they see the spiritual and insubstantial reality of the world in some way their own souls wander when they sleep and we see something happen where sandwalker encounters a tree that he doesn't believe is one of his own but has still this belief that all trees are of his people so are they losing this ability to recognize one another in some way? Or do you think they're able to see the spiritual realities of the world? And maybe that's why this poem at the beginning of the book is in, invoked. And what does it mean that they see the shadow children as something so other than how the shadow children see themselves? We don't see either the hill people or the marshmen communicating with these trees or with any non-humanoid life form in speech in a way that is intelligible to both parties. Sandwalker clearly doesn't speak tree, but he does know that this tree is a person. He recognizes its personhood, its sentience, and he also knows that it is communicating to him and that it has heard him. They may not really be understanding each other, right? But when he, when he, approaches the the tree where uh, he meets seven girls waiting and Mary Pink Butterflies, he feels like the sound that the tree is making is a happy sound, a positive sound, and therefore he takes that as permission. 
on the other side, when he gets to this tree where he encounters the ghoul bear at the marsh, and this tree doesn't seem to him to be like a person. What's interesting there is that this is the first tree he's ever seen that's not a person. He didn't really know there could be trees that weren't people. This is new to him. And so even though he's pretty sure this isn't a person, he still asks its permission and wants to be polite just in case, right? He's being careful because to him, trees are a type of people. So I think we can see it both ways. One, that there is something maybe that the Abos have, a a a sense that we as humans don't have a way of recognizing that another thing is a person that's beyond just looking at the form or the shape of it, uh, much in the same way that you know, dogs live in a world of smells that we simply just can't live in. But it does seem to break down for Sandwalker when he is out of his environment. So uh, maybe six of one, half dozen of the other. Really, I'm just kind of not coming down hard on answering your question. <laughs> Maybe you've got a more definitive answer. Well, I think it does speak to the nature of substances in this way, that the reality they exist in. So you brought up dogs smelling things, right? Well, there is a point where smells end, right? Because smells are a physical property of the world in that way. But not, and, and in the same way that sound is, there's a point where sound waves cease that is extension that is the terminal point there is not really a terminal point for for nothingness and i know we're going to talk a little bit about um the abo's religion in the next section that has to do with nothingness collapsing but i have no sense that the shadow children or the hill people i think it's a really complicated argument here for substance dualism ultimately for mental causation for there being more things in in the world that different species can experience or see and the ways to describe them are so foreign and alien that the only way we can talk about them is through extremely abstract complicated language i think we have a a problem in this story where we have ghosts we have a spirit not contained who can walk in dreams and still seems to have a certain form. Um, and then we have the shadow children who are just shadows of humans. The, the roles have been reversed. They are really shades, I think, in the, in the Dantean sense of the word. So I do think the Abo species is losing their ability to recognize the world as, and move through the world as they once did as a result of their desire to imitate humans. I think that speaks to the ultimate tragedy of the story. I think the story is a tragic story. It is a story about a fall of of something wrapped in glory being brought low. And the remainder is a dream or a shadow of what it was. And I think that also goes in line sort of with Vale's hypothesis that they learn to imitate humans so well that they lose their own ability to adapt and change. And something like that is going on, I think, as we see it happening in the story. It could be that the second tree he encounters, he doesn't recognize as a person because he's lost the ability to do that. And so he's, and, and we see even the first tree that he encounters in the Oasis, he's operating more on tradition than the kind of inherent species recognition that we might expect. 
The one piece of evidence that we have overlooked here is that Seven Girls Waiting does say that she has communicated verbally with the tree or linguistically in words is really what I'm saying here, right? That the tree has told her in a dream that he is the father of Mary Pink Butterflies. She doesn't say he's showed me in an image in my dream. It's he told me, right? He used words. There was speech involved. Uh, Perhaps this might be something that is gendered within the abos, this ability to communicate. It might also just be that the tree is, uh, that this abo that is in the form of a tree is way more interested in tree things than in people things. Uh, I don't know, much like Treebeard doesn't really want to care all that much about what's going on outside of Fangorn. Right. And he tells her in a dream. And that's the other thing is we know that that's one way these spirits recognize one another. That's one way the abos recognize one another is the ability to interact in one another's dreams in, in a truly insubstantial world. A dream is the best example that exists of non-substance, of, of the spiritual substance. It is the thought and it is the concept that has no extension. It doesn't begin or end at any point in the world. But we still have that container, that word for dream that holds a lot of stuff in it. Well, we're already wandering into really the next part of this broader motif, which is this question of mind versus body, or maybe not versus, but just seeing instances of mind or consciousness being emphasized in the story, but then also matters of of bodies being emphasized in the, the story. And we've are already kind of creating our own dichotomy there where we're wondering whether the abos are uh, bodily creatures or mental creatures. And this is complicated because they seem to have this rich consciousness that is a totally alien experience from our own, right? We see that uh, some hill people can send their consciousnesses into space, or, or at least they believe that they can do that. Uh, but we see Sandwalker and Eastwind swap their consciousnesses uh, in their dreams, uh, their experience in the world through each other's bodies when they're doing that. Uh, This may be something that just happens kind of accidentally to them, but it also might be something that Eastwind is actually learning how to do intentionally, you know, from Last Voice, that this is the school that he's going to. This is further complicated by a number of things. One, we know that sleeping places are often little dugouts or burrows that they're in, uh, in the dream of Eastwind, the first dream of Eastwind that we get, he's in uh, like a raft of reeds in the water. He is in contact with earth. We know that sleeping during the day makes it very difficult to control dreams and that the downfall of many hunters is taking a nap, finding a sleeping place at the wrong time. Sandwalker doesn't like to do this because his consciousness wanders. And he says, that no one will be home when the pre- for the priest basically to visit if his consciousness wanders in a dream while he's there. Their, their, their vessel empties out. Their spirit actually leaves their body. We know that they believe, as we brought up, that the spirits of trees are somehow the um, agent of reproduction with the women, but that it's really likely that Bloodyfinger is Sandwalker's father. We know that that the Marshmen have done experiments on other abos 
perhaps shadow children and they're losing that sense of that mystical world in some way, but that they still need to see from God's point of view. And we also know that the shadow children believe, at least the old wise one does, that group norm can float in the air 14,000 feet above the world uh, and that they read the stars. And so we're constantly seeing this extraordinarily complicated interplay of the mind's role, the soul's role in governing the body and souls interacting with soul things, the physical things interacting with the physical things and a confusion of what's happening in in the subjective experience of all of these groups of people. What really struck me about this reading through the novella uh, a second time in preparation for our wrap-up episodes here is that when we encounter this happening, and we really only see this actually happening with Sandwalker and Eastwind, and then we hear people talking about it, but we're seeing it happen to these two adolescent boys, and it is seemingly something that they can't control very well and that they are going to seek guidance for from an adult male. One of them is dead, I guess, but that they need to learn how to harness this ability maybe and, and harness in the literal sense of rein it in i guess maybe that's two different horse metaphors uh but to control it is what i'm saying here right, right? right. That, that this is something that that if they don't learn how to control it they might at some point never get their consciousness back in their body that's not a fear that's explicitly raised in the text but that seems to be what is the impetus for this story as we open is that Sandwalker has to go on this dangerous many day overland journey so that he can learn from the priest in thunder always how to control this either or perhaps both because this is something that might be dangerous for him if he doesn't learn how to control it or because learning how to control it will make him useful to the group even more useful than he is already as a really great hunter. But just in thinking about just in thinking about this as a part of their nature as a as a species or of some of them as a species anyway it almost feels like some of them are struggling to exist in matter that their natural form is almost to be immaterial and i find that really fascinating absolutely and i think that is found in the passage where the Shadow Children describes the forms the Abos used to take, which was a lava flow, a cloud. These are things we don't typically, water. These are things we don't typically don't think of as being physical in the same way we think of a person being physical. A cloud might not have the same properties of extension because it is just a different part of the same atmosphere that a person might. There is a distinct point of difference between the meeting of two physical objects, no matter how close you get them together. That is harder to determine when you're looking at particles of water that group together to form a river or a lava flow. And here again, we're looking at these elements in the world that are often used as metaphors for the destruction of material or immateriality itself, one in the case of lava, the other in the case of water or clouds. 
Yeah, let's flip this on its head and and let's talk about where we're seeing bodies emphasized in the text, because I think this one is really fascinating. I mean, the obvious thing here, right, is that the abos are shape shifters. They, they can change their shape. That's really cool. And it really stands out as an obvious emphasis on bodies because their bodies are clearly so different than ours are uh, as homo sapiens. But these things that they are mimicking, one, are themselves still matter, even though we might think of a cloud as being something that is wholly different from us or from you know the tables that we're sitting at. But it is still matter. It is water molecules that have uh, formed together. Uh, so is lava. So is is water as well. So these are still these are still animals that are in a body. It's just that the body is taking on properties that don't strike us as uh, the types of bodies that living creatures have, but they are still matter. Right. Absolutely. But as matter, they don't clearly have minds, right? We don't know at what point the abos achieve consciousness and why they choose the container of the human being to hold their sentience or consciousness. We don't see the tree being conscious in the same way we see Sandwalker being conscious. And this is one of the unresolved questions, the the mysteries, the puzzles that we're going to take up at greater length in the next episode. But I, I will, before we move on, I will just say, though, that I'm, I'm still not sure that that's true, that I think that, the, that, that I think that that tree is every bit as sentient as Sandwalker. It just is appears different to us and is choosing to not care about Sandwalker's story in the way that Sandwalker doesn't really care what's going on with the tree. He just wants to share its water for a little while. Yeah, I think for me, the question is resolved ultimately through through another unasked question, which is what will the tree do if Sandwalker violates its sanctuary? That is the question that's asked. What have the trees done that make the hill people so hesitant to trespass on their grounds. That's unanswered and unasked. Yeah, I think it probably has something to do with Saruman. Yeah, the great tree wars of, of, the, of the marsh and hill people. <laughs> I, w- I would read that saga. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's just talk about a couple more places where we see bodies being emphasized in the story. Uh, something that was awesome that you did in talking about substance was to point out that in the very first paragraph, we get this emphasis on the unseen. But in that same paragraph, right, the story opens with new bodies being created, or or at least entering the, the world, right? So there is already right in that first paragraph, there is this emphasis on sort of both of these things, and really maybe even the interplay of them. Uh, we should also say that all three humanoid groups that we meet in the story, shadow children, hill people, Marshmen, man, are they obsessed with eating? I mean, it's all they talk to each other about is eating and drinking. The most interesting thing to me about the way we see eating and drinking in this story is that only for the hill people alone do we see hunting and eating as a pure necessity for survival, that people who fail to hunt well are dead or their families are dead because they can't sustain life. With both the shadow children and the marshmen, eating and drinking is ritualized. And so it has some real symbolic value. 
um, that is in some way uh, an act of worship, uh, either to the group norm, the old wise ones, like we've done it, we're eating, we celebrate together, we're going to imitate nature after we eat. And for the for the marshmen, it is, uh, this is a gift that God has, we've given God a gift, and now we get the bounty from it. It's a sacrifice that they eat. So that's, there's all, there's already levels of metaphor built into being a body and how they understand bodies in this world for all three groups as well. Right. We definitely see like the marshmen practicing this ritual destruction of people's bodies in these religious sacrifices. But as you allude to, they are then going to consume them. And so there is this emphasis, not just on eating, but on being eaten, right? This is a story that I, I, these episodes really creeped me out because it did remind me that I am a thing that can be eaten. I forget that. I think as humans often, especially nerds like us, we often forget actually that we exist in bodies. This story was a huge reminder of that, that yes, the, the dogs and cats that I see out on the street, they could consume me. They could, if they were to take bits of my flesh into their digestive system, they would receive energy and nutrients from that, that I am just matter that can be consumed. I am just energy that can be used by other creatures. And there's a huge emphasis on that here in this story in the form of cannibalism. Yeah. And there's another wrinkle to it as well, which is they all prey upon one another in different ways. I think another bit of tragic irony that we've brought up is that the fact that shadow children are prey for the hill people is not only are they destroying the bodies of the shadow children, but they do not understand how their minds are shades, are screens from the new stars falling. And so when the hill people are destroying the bodies of the shadow children, they're also destroying their ability to remain safe through this spiritual connection. So maybe that is a way to begin to untangle this problem of embodiment and souls and what's going on here with with that as well, is that the hill people are destroying their best chances for survival because they treat this other species as prey and don't respect them as beings of any meaningful kind. And this is something that they learned from the shadow children themselves, right? The the ultimate assessment of the abos by the shadow children is based on their bodies. The shadow children call the abos native animals. Uh, it's completely acceptable to eat hill people and marshmen. In fact, this is like their favorite thing to eat. They seem to go out of their way to to get this if they can eat it. And in the pit, when Sandwalker and the Old Wise One are talking, uh, Sandwalker's intelligence is understood by the Old Wise One uh, to be limited because of the location and size of its brain, right? So his assessment really even of the, the intellectual merit and therefore maybe even the, the personhood of Sandwalker is based on an assessment of his organs, Right, but we also know through the story that him being a shadow friend and the, again, the the mirroring, the reversal at the end of the story is maybe an admission that the, the soul is larger than the brain. And, and we see in that scene where you're talking about bodies, the slippery language that Wolf uses to move from brain to mind to soul. And 
that maybe the immaterial part of them is larger than the material part. And this is an odd paradox for this creature because how would you say, and in what meaningful way would you say that your soul is larger than your brain? Yeah, how do you, how do you measure that? They're, they're, it's not even apples and oranges because we're talking about something that is matter and something that isn't. There, there's no scale, there's no ruler that can be used for both of these things. Well, I think that we have uh, consumed this body of discussion to death or something like that, I <laughs> something guess. Something like that. <laughs> so I'm really terrible with the metaphors tonight. Uh, but so let's move on to, to talking about time. But time strikes me as being another really big motif here in a story by John V. Marsh. And I'm going to divide this into two categories just so that we can have something discreet to talk about. Uh, the first of these categories is going to be the philosophy of time. And then the second of these categories is going to be history and, and memory. So we already talked a little bit about the philosophy of time as it's viewed by the Hill people and the Marshmen and how this is wrapped up in their religion. We saw that the Marshmen have this real presentist view of time, while the Hill people have this eternalist view of time, and that this matters for the religion because the question of whether or not God is outside of time or whether or not God is subject to time. We don't need to belabor that anymore. I think we spent a lot of time on that in that episode. So that's just a reminder, because what we left out of that episode is the shadow children who also have some things to say about the philosophy of time, what they think time is, and what they think the universe is, how those things are related, and, and also how they understand creation which might also then have something to do with how they understand God, though the Shadow Children never talk about God. Right. As we brought up, the Shadow Children really only approach the concept of God, not in terms of something they believe, but in terms of, in terms of a type of a way of being that they can achieve through use of their plant that they, that they chew on. So they have seemed to have lost contact with their own beliefs as a people in some way. But I think the imagery in this story is is pretty clear through the way spaceships are described as falling stars and through the fighting lizard, which is uh, the our solar system, and the degeneration and pride of the shadow children, that they are maybe demonic creatures in some way. And so they would never have a reason to talk about God as a creator because they talk about themselves as being self-created in some way. Yeah, right. And I, I did a little bit misspeak there when I said they don't ever talk about God. I meant in the passage that we're about to, to look at where, where it's wrapped up in time. And this is, this is the conversation that Sandwalker has with the first old wise one that he meets when he's you know, followed this tick deer to them. And this old wise one and this is the same conversation where he's explaining extension. This is clearly something you and I think is the, like the most important paragraph in the story. He says, that which you call nothing is what holds all things apart. When it is gone, all the worlds will come together in a fiery death from which new worlds will be born. Now, this image of the end of the universe, right? This is, this is one model that grew out of the, the massive cosmological shift uh, from the discovery that the universe is expanding. And this is something that happened in the 1920s. It was uh, first proposed by the Belgian astronomer and priest uh, uh, Georges Lemaitre. 
of course, we now call the impetus for this expansion the Big Bang. We all learn about it in school. But even in the 1960s, the late 1960s, when Wolf is working on this story, uh, the Big Bang is still a new and controversial model. There are people who are arguing against it, physicists who are arguing against it. And in fact, uh, the term Big Bang is actually coined by the astronomer Fred Hoyle uh, because he wanted to trivialize the expanding universe model. This was meant to be something that sounded really stupid and that, of course, no one would think the Big Bang is how it all began. It's the same way Schrodinger, in his attempt to... Uh describe particle physics as absurd the way a particle can't be a wave and a particle or be in two places of once in terms of probability comes up with this absurd model of the the cat and we don't know whether it's dead or alive until you open the box this was another attempt to trivialize something that we now use to describe how something works, how a model works in our world. Right. And and Lemaitre himself called this the primordial atom. And he also sometimes called it the cosmic egg. I think both of these terms are way better. Uh, fewer schoolyard jokes. I might also be more inclined to watch a TV show called the primordial atom theory than the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, I'd watch that show. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't. <laughs> no, I, if, if it's the same show with a different name, I'm not into it. Uh, I do want to say, though, just uh, to not uh, cast aspersions on Fred Hoyle, that he did believe in an expanding universe. He just didn't believe in the Big Bang or primordial atom part of it. He believed in what he called the static state universe, which is expanding, but is constantly getting more matter thrown into it. That's inconsequential. I just don't want his ghost haunting me tonight. Okay, but what I will say here is that even among astronomers and physicists who did subscribe to the Big Bang model in the 1950s and 1960s, there were still questions about what is going to happen to a universe that is constantly expanding, right? What is the ultimate fate of the universe? Does it just expand forever? Does it stop expanding and then that's just it? That's how big the universe is? Or does something else happen? And Uh, You know, there's one model that suggests that the universe will expand indefinitely, but that in 100 trillion years or so, the universe will begin to freeze because by that time, all of the stars will have burned out. And so even though there might be space for things to be going on, there's no energy for anything to be happening. Uh, And this is something that's called the big freeze. and, And I think this is actually the dominant model in cosmology right now. There is also the model called the big crunch, and this suggest that the expansion of the universe will slow down, it will eventually stop, and then it will start to contract until basically nothing is left. And then there's the variant of this that is called the big bounce. And this is in and this is the model in which that contraction to nothing leads to another big bang. And obviously, the big bounce here is what the old wise one is describing when he says, a fiery death from which new worlds will be born. And I suppose this is interesting on its own, just for being a minority opinion when Wolf wrote this story, or at least a new opinion that hadn't achieved scientific consensus. That's probably the better way to describe that. But I think that the the implications about time in this notion are what is really interesting, because Wolf here is giving the shadow children a view of time that is substantially and significantly different from that of the Hill people and also from that of the Marshmen. For the shadow children, Time is going to come to an end, and then it is going to start over. And this may happen again and again and again. 
And Sandwalker, who is so quick to tell the Marshmen that their philosophy of time is heretical, uh, that it doesn't accurately describe the state of the universe, and that it minimizes, it trivializes God, he, he doesn't comment on the Shadow Children's position here at all. He just doesn't say anything about it. So one more thing worth saying here is that this statement about the end of the universe comes out of nowhere, right? It's not really germane to the conversation, which is actually about shaking extension. It is about the songs. So I want to suggest that one of the things that Wolf is doing with time is is using it as a way to show us how these three different cultures have vastly different cosmologies, have vastly different intellectual priorities, that it's a shorthand way to build the characters of these cultures, right? That it's just a brilliant world building technique because in two lines, he can, he can say something that has massive implications for how they see the universe, how they see God, what they think creation is, what they think their place in creation is. Even this can inform what they think about bodies and minds and souls and substance, we can extrapolate from these views on the philosophy of time. Uh, But I think this is also something specifically here about the shadow children that we're going to want to keep in mind as evidence when we talk about who they are in our next episode. I wonder if there's not something else at play here, which is this same nothingness, which is what Sandwalker calls when he imagines his hands missing when he holds him them out in front of him is the extension of the soul. There's some immaterial existence uh, that is called nothingness. That is not nothingness that when it is destroyed, the universe will collapse. This is, I don't know, maybe something like what Berkeley might consider like God's attention. If God's attention slips on the universe, it would, it would, collapse in on itself. And I I love that you brought all that scientific information and knowledge into this, um, because this is also uh, imagery of the final judgment of in the found in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament, um, through which a new Jerusalem will be built, built a new place for God to have his home among his people. But that doesn't seem like what the shadow children are interested in. I think you're right to point out that they there's a, a certain type of neutrality to their attitude towards the death of the universe, to existence in some way. And that the new worlds aren't just the, the time kind of uh, recurring again and again, uh, time the, the flat circle just kind of going back in on itself, that the, the idea of new worlds is a world where maybe they won't have to exist. I think there's something really almost putrid about the Shadow Children's even attitude towards existence in this cosmology, in this view of the universe. Yeah, in a real broad sense, it's it's fatalist, right? It, it's not fatalist in the sense that it doesn't matter if I brush my teeth, uh, you know, I'm either going to get cavities or I'm not. But it is fatalist in the sense that everything is going to be destroyed. So no matter how we might feel about things, no matter how hungry we might get, no matter how sad we might get, no matter how happy we might get, none of that is going to matter because everything is going to be destroyed eventually. And it's it's stated here so flippantly, he's dismissing Sandwalker's 
objections and also confusion is really treating him as someone who is of a subpar intellect to himself. But it's so pessimistic, right? He's saying that he's telling Sandwalker that Sandwalker can't really understand what's going on. He doesn't even know that everything is going to end and that nothing really matters. I'm just trying to teach you how to sing our songs with us, bro. Yeah, that definitely. But this this idea of the the question of what is it that holds things apart, I think is in part informed by their ability to produce an immaterial being to speak for them. They have an idea of a world soul, of a group consciousness that gives them an identity. And that, that type of immaterial concept, identity, the distance between planets, all of our concepts, which are the property of spiritual substances, are really things that hold things apart in in, in meaningful ways. And I think they're also maybe commenting on that in some way. They clearly think that nothing is maybe not entirely nothing, or that there is something in the nothingness, right? Uh, And I think astrophysicists, cosmologists think that this is true now. Dark matter, dark energy. I'm not an expert on these things. I'm not even a novice on these things. But it does seem that what we're seeing here is that the shadowed children, this old wise one, is simultaneously talking about understanding, his understanding, his people's understanding of the vastness, the breadth, the bigness, the near infiniteness of the universe but then also talking about how much his people know about what's going on in the smallest parts of the universe at the the subatomic the sub subatomic level as well right that these are statements about both cosmology and about quantum mechanics both of which were fields that were revolutionary in the 20th century uh, things these were things that were going on in wolf's youth and his young adulthood that clearly captivated his imagination yeah, and I think we're talking about this because we want to understand how maybe the songs operate or what what's going on there. But I think the important line to keep in mind that we really didn't emphasize much in the last conversation is the old wise one saying to Sandwalker, that which you call nothingness is the thing that holds uh, things apart. It's not nothingness. It's that which Sandwalker understands as nothingness. Well, I think we'll be revisiting this when we try to understand who the Shadow Children are, where they came from, when they got here, all of those great questions that we'll take up in the next episode. Before we leave behind the philosophy of time to get into history and memory, we do have an unresolved question that I think we should address here, because I don't think it will take that long, which is that the Marshmen believe that their river flows into the ocean. That seems to be a demonstrable thing that's really happening. But they equate the river with time, and they equate the ocean with the past. And we we noted in an earlier episode that then what they're saying is that time is flowing into the past. I've been more than a little obsessed with this for about the past two weeks, but I still have no idea what is going on here. Do you have anything? I do want to bring up one thing that... Uh, struck me as I was rereading the story. And let me just tell our listeners that this is maybe the single best example of a wolf story that 
immediately benefits from a second reread. Everybody says, reread New Sun again, reread it, you'll understand more. In this story, there is so much packed into the first half that is explained in the second half that reading it again is like is like reading a new story. And it's not in the same way that like rereading Book of the New Sun is like reading a new book. You go deeper into it. But this is really two different stories when you read it a second time. On page 91 of the edition that we're using, the 1994 Orb edition, Sandwalker is deep in thought right before he meets the Shadow Children as he's tracking the tick deer, thinking about the old days of long dreaming when God was king of men and men had walked unafraid among the shadow children by night and the shadow children unafraid had sought the company of men by day. And this is the line that came out of nowhere and and just got me with a good left hook. But the long dreaming, but the long dreaming had given its years to the river long ago, floating down to the clammy meadow mirrors and death. And we also get in this paragraph, um, that it is Sandwalker himself who was thinking this, that this is somehow a thought that Sandwalker has, though this idea of the river representing time flowing into the past really comes from the Marshmen. And it just struck me, one, that maybe Sandwalker has some contact with this idea through his dream connection with Eastwind, ostensibly something he's had as a child. But as we all know, the best way to learn a foreign language or when we understand the mass, when we gain mastery over a, a foreign concept is when we're able to use its syllogisms and metaphors and uh, kind of new speech that it comes up with. And I think that that notion, time, that this idea, the long dreaming had given itself to the river, that this is a way of describing the history of the people, the things of the past. And because it's become a metaphor in use with both the hill people through Sandwalker, though, it, as I said, it could be very complicated there, um, but also that this is a main feature of the world, uh, uh, an instantiated metaphor for the Marshmen, that time flowing backwards is a yearning to return to a certain sort of halcyon day for these people that they have a culture, cultural memory for, in the case of the Hill people, uh, and yearn to re- return to when things were ordered properly, which speaks to the disruption of the imitation of this new form, I think, in some way. And for the Marshmen, it, it's much more literal. They are the scientific people. They are studying the stars. Though they have rituals, they're performing autopsies on living sentient creatures of their own kind, not for any sacrificial reason, which at least though it's heresy can be understood, but to look inside of the body, which is disgusting to Sandwalker. And so that there is a desire on both of these cultures parts to return to the past and the means of getting back there are very different. I think Sandwalker's people don't think you can get back there. This is an idea that has become a metaphor, a concept, the same way the idea of washing somebody in the river is 
representative of God's purity. But everything for the Marshmen is so literal. They have lost metaphor. And everything is then the result of logic and reason. They have no beliefs. They act in the world and expect the world to respond to their actions as a result. As I say, I still don't have any definitive answer or even position here. And and really, this is something I definitely want to kick to the wolf pack and see what they have to say. I was wondering if this is just an inversion of our own metaphors about rivers, our understanding of rivers and, and time, that there is something so innate in our culture. And I really almost think all human cultures, though I would love to be given counterexamples, that when we think about a river in motion and putting something in the river and and then what's going to happen to the thing that goes into the river, that we equate that with going into the future, right? That so if I make a little boat and I get into the Delaware River, it's going to take me in the direction that it's flowing. It's going to, in fact, take me out to the Atlantic Ocean. That journey is going to take time. And so from the perspective of the Glenn who got in that boat, the Glenn who reaches the ocean is going to be in the future. And that is how we, certainly as a culture, and I almost think as a species, think about the metaphor of time passing if we equate that with a river. But isn't it possible that these aliens have simply a totally different metaphor for this? That they're thinking about this from the perspective of not, I get in the river and go someplace, but that I put something in the river and it goes away from me. That it is flowing backwards in the sense of it is leaving me in the way that that what is now in 10 seconds is behind me. I think it might just be totally different cultural metaphors, but that this metaphor of time flowing forwards and that rivers flowing forwards is so ingrained in us that it is nigh impossible for me to really wrap my head around it. There could be a few other things going on as well. One is we know that the marshmen put things in the river so that God can see them. And maybe they have a more advanced understanding of space, of the ocean being the infinite past, of the messages on the river, of because their consciousness can be cast into space, where God sees all things, that God is somehow in the past as well. And we get this from Sandwalker's own story about God walking among men in the past. This is how we view the cosmos as we are seeing the past when we look out into the great ocean of space, not the future, not even the present. This idea of the waterfall being the kind of Milky Way spilled across the the sky. I think we're seeing something going on here with a complicated understanding of time for these people. So perhaps their ability to look out into the stars and back onto the earth, when they put a message in the river, God is seeing it in the past, and that allows him to change their present and their future. Something like that might be happening. But I also think I struggle with this concept in in a really deep way, because time as a river is an old metaphor, and we use it to measure change, right? Time is really a measurement of change in the world. 
we it's it's a concept that we use to describe how matter changes and matter doesn't revert back to its old self and so it's just such a foreign thing and i think you're absolutely right that this use of metaphor and the way they're talking about it is in part meant to make us feel alien to this species I have a small mental list of questions that I would ask Gene Wolfe if I ever get the chance to meet him at a con or something like that. But I think this question is now at the top of the list. I can't imagine it ever being displaced. I am real excited to hear what the Wolfpack might have to say about this. Uh, So please write to us, come to the forums, let us know if you've got a solution to this. Uh, No matter how crazy it is, I think we'd love to hear it. I think with that said, let's move on to talking about history and memory. Uh, a couple things that we can say just categorically off the bat is that there no one on this planet, or at least in this area of the planet that we are seeing, has any written records of the past. They don't, in fact, actually seem to have any writing at all. But the Abos do have a sense that there was a time before now when things were different. And, and you just invoked this, Brandon. It is the long dreaming. And, and we should say a bit about the dreaming uh, before we go on, right? This is something we've actually kind of neglected to do as we were doing the recap episodes. Uh, this idea of, of the dreaming, this, this is a term that is often used uh, to talk about the cosmology of uh, indigenous Australians. Uh, there, are, there are a number of scholarly problems with the name, the dreaming, and, and whether or not it's even a thing that actually featured in indigenous stories before Europeans arrived in Australia. Uh, but it was taken very seriously by anthropologists uh, really up until the point that Wolf was writing this story. It's not until sort of mid-late 1970s that anthropologists started to think that maybe this was something they themselves had actually accidentally made up. Uh, and of course, the dreaming is a massive part of pop culture now. I mean, if you you know were around in the 90s, you read some Sandman comics, uh, then you know about the dreaming. And of course, the Sandman comics uh, have uh, you know connection to Wolf. Gene Wolf wrote a forward to one of the the collections of the Sandman comics. So we just wanted to make sure that we called attention to the fact that that's one of the things that Wolf is drawing on here. But what we really want to do with that is just talk about what's happening here in the text, right? And this is the long dreaming and the the memory of God. And I'm going to read again the passage you just read, Brandon, uh, just to get it back in our minds quickly. Uh, Sandwalker thinks, In the great old days of long dreaming, when God was king of men, men had walked unafraid among the shadow children by night, and the shadow children, unafraid, had sought the company of men by day. So this is... Uh, A label that Sandwalker and his people apply to a time when two things were different. One of the things that was different is that God was the king of men. He was the the ruler of people. The other thing that was different is that men, or abos, we might say, and shadow children got along with each other. They didn't try to eat each other. They were not uh, enemies. They were not natural enemies during that time. Uh, to my mind, though it's not explicit in the text, to my mind, the two things are related. And we've talked about this before, that that this is based on the prophetic books of the Old Testament, this sense that when God is present on the earth as the ruler of the earth, that all nations, all peoples will live together in peace. What's really fascinating here is that this is telling us that God is gone now. And that it's God's absence, God's departure is the reason why the state of the world is not 
harmonious any longer. It is no longer peaceful that there is war and violence. Uh, and I would say that violence is something that really characterizes this story. This is the most violent wolf story that we've read so far, for sure. And something, and you were just talking, Brandon, about how this story benefits from an immediate reread in ways that maybe no other wolf work does. Something that I did not notice our first time through, but only noticed going through it a second time, is that it's not just the abos who think about the long dreaming. The old wise one, when they're in the the pit, when they're in, in prison together, talks about the long dreaming days. And he describes the long dreaming days as this period after their arrival on St. Anne, which I guess is kind of clear in the sense that it's characterized by the two species, the two groups maybe, living together in peace. But it does maybe also suggest that God came with them. And I find that perhaps an interesting suggestion. I disagree with your suggestion almost in its entirety because I don't believe, I do not believe that God came with the abos in in terms of the with the shadow children in terms of the long dreaming. It's certainly suggested perhaps in the text that this memory of God is tied up in this period of time that includes both shadow children and the abos. Here's what I think is going on is that the abos began to change when the shadow children arrived. And as creatures created things, though maybe not sentient or conscious at this point, before imitating humans, they had a certain type of innate knowledge of God. And during this time when they were interacting together, when the shadow children were human, the innate knowledge of God in the creatures, uh, and this is, you know, Catholic theology, right? Uh, This is something Wolf might believe is that there's, there's, a dog doesn't need to have faith, right? It's not something we expect of a dog. Um, but that this is pre-imitation, but they are beginning to awaken to it. And so their innate knowledge then shifts as consciousness and the, the mix of humans and, abo, and abos comes to pass that now they, they require faith in order to believe in God. And the shadow children have lost that. Like I said in the last discussion, there is a total reversal in positions as a result of this imitation. The shadow children are now the the tragic figures. They are the the royalty confronted that they are no more with the fact that they are no more than the beggar's shadow in some way. So that's what I think is going on is is that this long dreaming is taking place at a time where the abos, the creatures that they were, are becoming conscious it's pre-conscious and so what they have is innate knowledge and that is part of what they remember and one of the reasons i think this is because the last line of the story is this sentence that night sandwalker dreamed that he was dead but the long dreaming days were over it's that but that makes me really think that the long dreaming days have to do with a state of maybe unembodied consciousness of unembodied being like the same way maybe there are only a certain number of souls and they inhabit bodies and they return to it they return to being souls and it's this endless cycle but there was a time before the soul was embodied and that dreaming that you're dead is that time after but there's no way to return to the time before to the state of innocence before 
the soul is embodied. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from is there that this was a paradise before the star fell and the humans created a, a measure of chaos here. And that's the third voice that we have talking about the long dreaming is this narrative voice at the end, right? This is the, the voice of the narrator who's really saying that although in the first passage where we get this idea of the long dreaming, Sandwalker thinks the long dreaming is over. It's been over long ago. The narrator thinks that it is still happening, that this story is still taking place in the period of the long dreaming. But this is the story of how the long dreaming really comes to an end. So there are at least two different understandings of when the long dreaming was or, or how long it lasted. This, of course, is how history works. This is how periodization and our understanding of events that make things different. This is how this all, all functions. One thing I will also say, I was just kind of baiting you a little bit by making that suggestion. Of course, when the old wise one is even saying this in the pit, he is becoming more and more a creature, actually, of Sandwalker's own mind at this point. So it's probably not even fair to characterize that as a completely shadow (laughs) child position. Yes, no, that's absolutely right as well as, I mean, that is something we did not spend a lot of time on, but that in itself is worthy of a conversation that is longer than the one we're already having. The melding of the two consciousnesses to, to create a new group norm. Well, we've got one more wrap-up episode to go for this story, so I think that we will get to that in the next one. But for now, we've got just one more small thing that we want to do, which is to talk about uh, the Shadow Children's perhaps like actual understanding of, of history and memory, or how history and memory function in their culture. Uh, we can say a couple things about their relationship with uh, memory, with the, the past. One of them is that they're not sure how long they're people have been on St. Anne. They don't know. It was either very recently or it was a long time ago. Uh, They sing songs to each other. This is a big feature of the story. Uh, Sandwalker assumes that the songs that they sing tell about their history, tell about their past. This may actually explain more about Sandwalker's culture than about the Shadow Children. This may actually tell us that Sandwalker's people, the Hill people, have songs that they sing that tell about their past. And we should point out, too, that right that the Shadow Children at that point said, well, we didn't actually have any songs until we got here. Uh, one thing I did point out last episode is that the, the Shadow Children are completely obsessed with keeping track of the phases of San Qua, tracking uh, not a moon, but what we would think of as the phase of the moon. This is how they are tracking the passage of time because it's how they know when it is okay to do more drugs. So they are obsessed with the passage of time, even if they're not actually sure how many like years have gone by. They know how many days have gone by. And they also have this sense of a bookended existence because they, they understand that their species didn't always have the use of fire. So they know that their species has gone through massive uh, changes in its ability to interact with the universe or to interact with the material world, uh, perhaps to control the material world. But they also know that the universe is going to end in fire. So there's this you know, sort of bookended sense of their own beginning and ending. And the last thing I'll say about the Shadow Children and, and history and memory is that there's a sense in which they seem to have lost track of when now is. But at the same time, they've developed a heightened sense of the vastness of time. 
and that the two things might actually be related. They're almost maybe in, in some ways lost in their own understanding of eternity or infinity. Yeah, I think we have to take into account that they've been using this drug, which enhances their sense of total subjectivity. This is almost like the the stoned ape theory in some way that Wolf is turning on its head and saying, like, actually, drugs aren't going to expand our consciousness. They're going to make us fools. And that's part of what he's representing with the, the shadow children here. They're climbing, the shadow children are climbing the wrong mountain. And maybe the abos aren't. In order to embark on that journey, you're going to meet corruption along the way. And I think that's part of what's going on in this story. I also want to say, I think when we're looking at Sandwalker's approach to the songs of the Shadow Children as being a history, we see how that comes into play in the text when Sandwalker suggests that the best way to grieve somebody is to sit around with your people and tell stories about them. And for the Shadow Children, it's just to sing the tear song. The Shadow Children have abandoned history. While the Abos are just creating their history, they want the memories of their people to be a part of their present, to remind them how to live, to grieve in the right way. While the Shadow Children basically say, well, when we see, sing these songs, we're distracted for enough time that the pain leaves us. And I think that's also what's going on with the songs and why... Sandwalker is confused because when we talk, we're almost always talking about the past or the present, or the present moves into the future. But the Shadow Children are just present. This is the mind altering drug that forces them to be eternally present. Well, I don't think there's a better way to put it than to say that the Shadow Children have lost their sense of history, and the Abos, or at least the Hill people, are developing it. Of course, as you alluded to, Brandon, when we initially outlined our single wrap-up episode, this question was going to lead directly into the puzzle of when did the Shadow Children get here? Who are they? Where did they come from? We realized, even before we started recording, that this was going to have to be two episodes, and we've decided to cut it there. So uh, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. We post a lot of tough questions. We hope you'll jump on the forums to let us know what your answers, your responses to these questions are. Tell us where we got things wrong and what you think the right answers are. Uh, we really look forward to it. Next time, we'll be back with the end of this wrap-up episode. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>